Welcome to episode 33. This is the podcast where we give you an inside look at aviation careers and motivate you to achieve your career goals. I'm really excited to be bringing you this episode because my guest today is a friend and fellow aviator who is passionate about flying, and he'll help you understand what it's like to fly the world as a corporate pilot. Before we begin, I want to say thank you for listening, and also thanks to all those who have sent me feedback. I also want to thank those who've offered financial support to the podcast through donations. But, you know, I don't actually take donations, but one of the best ways you can help support this podcast is visit aviationcareerspodcast.com and click on one of our sponsors listed in the right column of the website. Uh, I also am working on another solution where you can sponsor this program while giving to a great cause. I'll give you more details later, but I'm really excited about this opportunity because it involves helping are World War II veterans and helping World War II veterans fly to Washington, D.C. to see the monuments. I'll tell you a little bit about that in the later episodes. Another way, of course, you can show support for this show is to put a five-star review in iTunes. This not only helps others find my show, but uh, the reviews truly help me stay motivated since it shows that I'm actually helping others through this podcast. I encourage you to sign up for email updates because periodically I'll be sending out career opportunities, reviews, and announcements concerning my new book, Aviation Careers, in Inside View. I'm truly excited about this episode, though, because I get to talk to a friend and fellow aviator who's, who's going to help me reply to a listener email. Today I have with me Chris Wren. He's a corporate pilot, or was a corporate pilot, who worked his way up through uh, aviation from the kid watching planes at the grass strip to flying jets around the world. Hey, Chris, uh, welcome to the Aviation Careers Podcast. Hey, Carl, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, it's great to have you on here today. I know you have a little bit of a cold today, but that's part of the part of the job. You're actually in the middle of a trip right now. What uh, what cool city are you in right now? Uh, well, I just got back from San Juan, Puerto Rico, and I'm in Washington, D.C. right now. And uh, later on today, I'll be heading down to Orlando and then up to uh, JFK. Cool, cool. That sounds like fun. Um, hey, I'll, and it's a beautiful day to fly today, of course. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> hey, you know, Chris, today's episode was inspired by an email from Garrett. So I was wondering if you don't mind, I'm going to read part of that email, and then we'll try to uh, we'll talk to you a little bit about your career. Hopefully, most of our discussion will answer his questions, and, and then later on, we'll get to some specifics in his email. It's a little bit long of an email, so I'm going to leave out some of the parts where... Uh, I'm going to editorialize, in other words. There's there's some really neat things about his personal life that he shared, really passionate about aviation. So let me go ahead and uh, read this email from Garrett. Garrett writes, Hey, Carl, just wanted to drop you a note and say great job on Aviation Careers Podcast. I recently found the podcast and have listened to every episode in the last few days, pretty much 24-7. Wow, that's a lot of listening, Garrett. My favorite one that you did was comparing business or corporate flying and the airlines in episode 14. You did a great job in describing the difference in the two and the jobs in the two different careers and also the jobs available in the corporate world. I was wondering if you could do another episode and really expand on the corporate end of it. So, by the way, if you want to listen to that, that's uh, Aviation Careers Podcast slash 14 or Aviation Careers Podcast uh, episode 14 where I describe the differences. Continuing with Garrett's email, I'm currently 38 years old and immersed in aviation. My granddad was a Navy pilot in World War II who later owned a charter and crop dusting service. He taught my grandmother to fly, my mom to fly, and my dad to fly. All this while I was in my younger years prior to age 10. My granddad ended up selling the business, and I was never fully involved in aviation. I still recollect flying to Colorado and going camping, though. Those are some great memories, Garrett. 
He continues, one day I decided that I wanted to fly powered parachutes. Well, that didn't last long, and I decided to go for my private pilot license instead. I found a local instructor and started taking lessons. I was hooked like you can't imagine. Why I didn't do this 20 years earlier, I have no clue. This was a life for me. About halfway through my initial rating, the company that I was working for at the time went through a series of layoffs, and I was let go. After putting several resumes out there and knocking on tons of doors, I find myself employed at an aviation company. I was in heaven. I now work on an airport where I can see the runway out my window and see what goes on every day. I love it. We have several company airplanes for the employees to use. 90% of the employees where I work are pilots. The atmosphere is incredible. I am always a doer. I get bored easily, and I'm always looking for a challenge. I'm lucky because I get to go to Sun and Fun in Oshkosh every year and represent the company I work for, along with being totally immersed in aviation on a daily basis. This is my dream job. Well, so I thought. And now Garrett wants to go on to fly. He, he continues, I'm 38 years old and have nothing to lose pretty much. If I don't give this a shot now, then I'll never do it. So I dove off the cliff headfirst and have my eyes set on being a corporate pilot. The great thing is I am a networking fool and have several doors open just as soon as I can take advantage of them. Number one, could you do a podcast discussing the routes into the corporate world, specifically from people that moved through the ranks on their own grassroots style, not the ones who went through flight school or anything like that? I want to hear from somebody that didn't go out and take an $80,000 loan and do the fast track program. I know these people are out there because I run into them a few times at FBOs. Well, Garrett, I have such a person with me today. It's it's Chris uh, Thren, but also, actually, that's the way I went through it. I actually did all my ratings and uh, paid my, as I went through them, I actually was working a job. Uh, Garrett continues on with a question. He says, is 38 uh, too old to enter the industry? Uh, I say no, but we'll we'll discuss that later. Uh, one thing that has him worried, though, is this new rule out there, the new ATP rule, as as we call it. Uh, he wants to know if that's uh, that's going to change. What this this rule is is basically anybody flying as a second in command, uh, part one twenty one, and also I think one thirty five will actually have to have their ATP. Anyway, he wants a little bit of information there. So yeah, he asked again if uh, if we could create an episode where we could touch on these subjects, and and that's what we're doing here today. And it, it, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, this could actually take up two episodes, but we're going to try to compact it because I have somebody with me who could really explain a lot of these things very well. He continues on, keep up the great work, Carl, and I look forward to every week listening to what you have to report. I appreciate all you do for us pilots out there. Garrett. Well, Garrett, thanks again for the email and the incredible story. Since you took the time to write me with such a wonderful, interesting story, I decided to try to find someone, of course, to help out with us. And again, this is Chris Thren that's here with us today. He started at a really young age. He's going to help us understand what it's really like to fly the world as an international corporate pilot. Uh, I think he'd be perfect because uh, Chris actually flew, uh, the last job he had, he was flying a Falcon 900, and, and he's flown many other airplanes around the world. And he's also worked as a Czech airman and has many years of experience flying uh, to some of the most remote parts of the world. So let's uh, let's talk to Chris a little bit. Chris, again, uh, welcome to the show. And, and you uh, just if you could, give us a few highlights before we start talking about your background as to your corporate career. What were some of the, the really neat and cool things that you've done? Well, I would have to say one of the 
the the most um, enjoyable things for me was getting my ATP paid for by the company that I was working for at the time. They had a King Air 300, and uh, I was flying that SIC, and they sent me to training, and I uh, was able to get my uh, ATP and my type rating all in the same check ride on that airplane, and it was all paid for by the company I was working for, which was really cool. After that, I would have to say flying my first jet and then getting subsequent type ratings after that in uh, multiple aircraft was another highlight of my career, especially the Falcon 900. It's a three-engine uh, intercontinental jet, and I really enjoyed flying that airplane. I would have to say probably the most important or most um, exciting highlight in my corporate career was flying across the Atlantic Ocean for the first time uh, on a trip to Italy, which took me over the Swiss Alps and everything. It was just a a real highlight. I'll never forget it. It was one of the most um, enjoyable times in my career. Wow, that sounds really cool. I hope you got some good pictures. I did. <laughs> well, now you mentioned a bunch of airplanes. What, like, give me an idea. I know you said the Falcon 900. What other corporate aircraft have you flown? Well, I started out in a Cheyenne uh, with this company, Right Seat, um, flying non-rev trips just to uh, build my right seat time. I had a friend that worked there. And whenever he would uh, take pilots to uh, pick up an airplane in maintenance or drop them off, uh, we would fly up there to uh, Islip, New York, where the facility was, and he would let me fly right seat. I progressed on into the King Air 300, like I said, and got the type rating in that. Uh, after that, my first jet was the West Wind 2, and I flew that probably about 3,000 hours, the West Wind 2. Then after that, the company that I was flying for um, got a Citation 5. I got type rated in that. After that, they kind of uh, moved away from the West Wind and the, Fal and the uh, Citation and, and went to an all-Falcon family. And that's where I got my Falcon 20 and Falcon 900 experience. So I have, I think, five type ratings in all right now. Wow, that's cool. I mean, that, that, now that uh, going back, you said the word non-rev. Uh, can yeah. you just explain what, what do you mean by that, non-rev again? Well, uh, when you're... A flight instructor, I was a flight instructor at the time. I was trying to build my multi-engine time because we all know that companies look at that when they're trying to hire somebody uh, for a corporate job. And so this friend of mine, he knew I was trying to build my multi-engine time and um, would call me up and say, hey, you know, we can't pay you, but would you like to ride along in the right seat and I'll let you fly the airplane? And of course, I jumped at the chance because, you know, I didn't have much multi-engine time at the time. I probably had... 30 or 40 trips with that with that gentleman um, in um, the right seat where he would let me fly the King Air and the uh, Cheyenne 2XL. That's pretty cool. So that's those non-rev flights really do help out flight instructors. They want to build some time. And uh, like you said, that's that's a real good opportunity for people. You know, let's let's go back now. Now that we know some of the cool jets you've flown, you didn't just jump into that. You didn't just walk in one day and say, hey, I want to I want to fly a Falcon 900 around the world. You had you had a long process. You did, and you also you didn't. This is correct. You didn't actually go out and just pay for all your ratings and all in one fell swoop. You're you're the person that went out there to the grass strip and started. Uh, that's correct. I um, I started when I was fourteen. Well, you know, I wanted to be a pilot since I was five years old. I think <laughs> uh, I call it, it. It was a calling for me. How did you um, figure that out at five years old? Well, you know, I lived right near Newark Airport, and um, I would I would go outside and sit on my tricycle and watch <laughs> uh, 727s and 707s, DC-8s coming in and out of Newark. And um, 
you know, there were these big, huge flying machines that I just was so enamored with that um, I think that's when it all started for me. I have to credit my father, too, because he's an airplane nut. He's not a pilot, but he loves airplanes. And he used to take me to a bridge near Newark so we could see them actually taking off and landing. Um, and I think that's when I really, really caught the airplane bug. But uh, to move forward, I started flying when I was 14 years old. I had a paper route, and I also worked as a busboy at a restaurant. So I wasn't making a lot of money, but when I did save enough money for a lesson, I would take the city bus out to the airport. I would walk around from the terminal all the way to the FBO where they had the uh, flight school, and I would take a lesson. It was difficult because I could only take a lesson maybe once a month, and if I was lucky and worked really hard, maybe twice a month. So it took me a long time to get my private rating, but I did finally achieve that. And um, I did that. I got my private pilot license before I even got my driver's license. Um, <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. And um, after that, um, I went to college. I didn't have any money to fly because I put myself through college working two jobs. Um, but after I got out of college, I got a job with a uh, graphic design company. I started saving for my ratings and um, started ticking them off one by one. And I would say probably six years later after I went through my uh, instrument commercial multi-engine and my CFI rating, I had uh, enough ratings to be able to accept a job as a flight instructor. So I quit that job at the uh, graphic design firm. I was making um, about $85,000 a year that year. Wow. And I became a full-time flight instructor. And I think the first year uh, of hard work as a flight instructor, I made about 13000 a year. Wow, that's a big change. <laughs> yeah, but it, for me, you know, like, like I said, it was my calling and I knew what I wanted to achieve. So I knew it was all part of the process of, of uh, getting the experience and moving forward with my career goals. Wow, that's and that's a neat story going from that point there. Now, can we back up about your ratings? Now, how did you, you went through a bunch of ratings there. How did you actually do that? In other words, you were working this job and you also did your ratings. I mean, how, that must have been pretty tough. It was difficult. Um, luckily, my wife was very supportive. And especially when I quit that job to become a flight instructor, you know, obviously the money wasn't there. She had a, a great job at the time and was able to support us. Um, what I wound up doing was I wound up flying whenever I could. Uh, after work, in the evenings, on the weekends. Uh, if I could, I would take off early on a Friday. I started to incorporate uh, flying into my job at the time with the graphic design company because I had to travel somewhat to, to some uh, customers. So I asked my boss at the time if he would pay for the rental of the airplane instead of airlining me wherever I needed to go. And I would build time that way. And it would be free because he would pay for the aircraft. It was great. Wow. That's pretty creative. That's a great option. And uh, another thing I did was, um, you know, I hung out at the airport a lot and I made a lot of friends and guys that owned aircraft who were uh, building time or just traveling around, wanted companionship or wanted somebody to sit in the right seat while they were under their foggles, that kind of thing. Um, I would just ride along with them and, um, you know, I just kept flying as much as I could and all the while training too. It wasn't easy, but uh, and it did, didn't it didn't happen fast. 
Uh, it took me, like I said, about six years till I finally got all my ratings and was in a position where I could uh, leave my job and become a flight instructor and, and pursue this full time. And how old were you again when you became a flight instructor? I was 29, I believe. Okay. When I became a flight instructor. So a little bit, you know, a little bit later in life then. Yeah. Yeah, actually. Uh, wait a minute. The more I think about it, I was probably about 26. 26, okay. 26 or 27 to last when I started as a flight instructor because I was a flight instructor for two years. So you weren't the 18-year-old instructor out there. You were a little bit older. You had some experience compared to some others. Right, right. And uh, so now you you went on from there and you got all these ratings through a very long period of time because I, I want to make that as a key point here because a lot of folks do this. And I think, and this is a question I get from a lot of people, is how can they manage working their job currently and also working towards an, a rating, whether it be a flight instructor, an instrument rating, a multi-engine rating? From my viewpoint, I've done one of those accelerated programs and I actually went at night after work, and boy, it really wore me out. I had to take a little vacation after that. So you, it takes a lot of dedication, and it doesn't happen overnight, as Chris has shown right here. Um, but but you can make it through. I mean, and now you went on to become an instructor. Were you busy? You, you said you were making about thirteen thousand a year. Was that because you weren't working? Oh no, I was working twenty four seven. I mean, I would I would show up at the airport at 6.30 in the morning, and I would work till 9 p.m. at night every day, seven days a week. You know, there's a lot involved with being an instructor, from the ground training to taking cross countries with students to the post-flight briefings. Uh, and, um, you know, it takes up a lot of time, and you, you're not making a lot of money doing it, but you're building your hours, you're gaining experience, you're learning by teaching. And by that, I mean when you teach somebody and you're a effectively teaching them, it really helps you to understand the knowledge that you are imparting on those people. So you come away from that, not only with flight time, but with experience and knowledge that is invaluable. Um, in addition to that, you come away with a certain confidence, I think, because these students, they do a lot of things in the airplane that you're not expecting that you have to handle. And to me, I walked away with invaluable experience from being a flight instructor, and I would recommend that as, as one of the best ways to begin a corporate career is to get that experience as a flight instructor. I think that I highly recommend that also. But how about from – I know from the experience standpoint, there's nothing like being a flight instructor. You learn so much, and you're able to react to things, and you're able to see things from a different perspective instead of just being the pilot flying, and you actually learn as you're instructing. But how about from a business standpoint? Does being a flight instructor, does that help you in move towards a job in the corporate world? Absolutely, and I'll tell you why. Um, myself, when I was employed as a flight instructor, technically I was a contractor. I was not technically employed, so I did not get a W-2 at the end of the year, I had a, I got a 1099. So primarily, my goal was to, ve to develop a student base, which I did utilizing the marketing skills that I learned from my graphic design job. I produced flyers, and um, I would go around to different parking lots and grocery stores, and at air shows especially, and I would put these flyers under people's windshield wipers. And the flyers basically promoted flying and 
my flight instruction business. And through that, I developed my own student base of, I had about 75 total students, of which I would say maybe 30 to 50 were active, which really kept me busy. And it also taught me how to manage my business, how to become um, an effective instructor. And also, it helped me develop my professionalism as an aviator, dealing with, with lots of different personalities dealing with um, all kinds of situations, dealing with, with issues and problems that arise, dealing with weather, uh, aircraft malfunctions, uh, the whole gamut. It really gave me the tools and the background that I needed to move forward as a, as a corporate aviator. And I think that's that's very key right there, uh, dealing with all these different personalities. You know, as an airline pilot, a lot of times you don't interact with the customer, but as a corporate pilot, boy, you sure do. Uh, as a matter of fact, if we could talk a little bit about that again, go back to flying as a corporate pilot and flying around the world, you know, what's it like? I mean, geez, you know, you, you can't, now you're a flight instructor, you get this corporate job. And, uh, oh, by the way, when, uh, how did you go from the flight instructor to the corporate job before we talk about flying these different parts of the world? Well, remember uh, before I told you about the friend that I had that would uh, allow me to fly right seat at this corporate job that he had? Um, he worked for a company that had uh, five different corporate airplanes at the time. I would fly non-rev with them as much as I could, and I found myself flying non-rev with the chief pilot sometimes. Shortly after that, I would get phone calls from them, and they would have me uh, fly SIC as a paid SIC, which to me was just fantastic. I had to juggle my students around a little bit, but they were very understanding, and um, I would fly these trips SIC with this company. Before long, uh, to my surprise, um, they must have seen liked what they saw in me. And one day, out of the clear blue sky, they gave me a call and said, hey, can you be here at 1 o'clock? And I said, well, I have to juggle some students. Where am I going? And they said, well, we're, we're going to offer you a job. <laughs> and I said, oh, I'll be there. <laughs> Absolutely, I'll be there. And um, so I went over to their hangar, which was across the field. They took me down to the uh, HR director's office, and he offered me the job and, and told me what my beginning salary would be. and, and um, at that time, my beginning salary wasn't the best, but it quickly accelerated to a very well-paying job. Uh, and that's how I started as a corporate pilot. Now, I was only flying a Cheyenne and a King Air at the time, SIC, but over time, I was able to, as I mentioned, get my, my ATP and my type rating in that King Air 300. So it blossomed into a very lucrative, very wonderful career path for me. You know, Chris, as you were talking, I want to stress a point here. There's a lot of folks that uh, say that you have to pay for your time in airplanes, you have to work for free, but it sounds like other than those non-rev flights you did, you, you basically were making money uh, at every point of the way through your career getting to the corporate job, correct? Yes. Even when I was a flight instructor, um, there would be this, this FBO that I worked at, uh, as a flight instructor, had a charter department, and there would be middle of the night trips where they had to fly their Navajo somewhere to pick up some body or um, some donor organs, or there would be a charter trip where they would fly uh, fifty lab cats 
to uh, another destination and they would uh, ask me to fly right seat and they would pay me. It wasn't a lot, but they would pay me to do it. And, um, you know, I jumped at the chance because it was experience for me. And, you know, I was able to uh, gain a little, you know, a little bit of uh, payment as well in doing it. So I think one of the best things, and Garrett mentioned this in his, his email, and I think he has the right frame of mind. I think the best thing for somebody to do who wants to get into the corporate aviation industry is to network, network, network. Um, believe it or not, it is a small world uh, when it comes to the aviation industry, especially the corporate aviation industry. And to be in a position like he is at an airport in a job that is aviation related uh, with several doors open to him to take the, the opportunity for him. I think he's in a perfect place and that I would highly recommend that he continues that positive outlook and network as much as possible because what's going to happen for him is what happened to me. Somebody's going to see the promise in him and the passion in him and the professionalism in him. And they're going to, they're going to think that he would make a fantastic employee for him and for them. And one day they'll give him a call. Well, and I think that's great advice. And I think networking is very, very, very important, especially in the corporate world. And I think every, if you've listened to this podcast and you listen to any of the corporate pilots we've had on, they've all said the same thing you have. It's very important to network. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, but okay, now you've got this job, but really one of the things I want to know is I, I'd never done like the worldwide corporate thing. I've done like interstate and that's about it. But I mean, geez, you know, what's it like to go to all these far corners of the world. I mean, what's, it, you know, you get up and then you fly, you actually went around the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the last corporate job that I had, I was fortunate enough to make, um, probably, uh, almost two dozen Atlantic crossings and, uh, fly to Brazil, Latin America. It was a very exciting opportunity for me, uh, because that was something I always wanted to do. As I mentioned to you, one of the one of the biggest highlights of my aviation career was flying across the Atlantic for the first time. It's very challenging to fly to some of these remote locations because, first of all, you have a language barrier. Some of these places, you know, you go to London and obviously uh, they speak fluent English. But if you go to Honduras or somewhere like Faro, Portugal, uh, it's difficult to understand, even though their English is the common language, it is difficult to understand a controller who's speaking quickly, uh, in a, in a certain accent that you're not familiar with. So that's one of the challenges that you face. The other challenge you face as a corporate pilot is that you're responsible, responsible for accomplishing all the tasks required of that flight. For example, you're responsible for, for verifying your IKO flight plan. If you're using a handler, typically the handler will file the flight plan for you, but you're responsible for verifying it and implementing it. Um, you're responsible for ordering all the catering, determining how many liters of jet fuel you need. Uh, you're responsible for all aspects of that flight, right on down to making your own hotel reservations, which can be uh, – questionable in certain areas. You know, in Honduras, um, there's only one or two hotels in San Pedro Sula that are, are up to the standards that you and I are familiar with. Um, so there's a lot of research involved. 
and um, there's a lot of planning involved. Another thing that you have to be familiar with is every country has a, their own set of regulations, and you have to really be on top of those. I'm sure you've heard stories of uh, corporate pilots getting in trouble in other countries and that sort of thing. And part of that is because of the differences in the regulations that different countries have and their expectations of you to follow their regulations when you're there. The flip side of all this is that it is tremendously exciting and so much fun. One of the cool things when you're a corporate pilot is when you get to your destination, you're finished. Your passengers typically go on to a meeting. You you wait until they're done their meetings. And during that time, you have the free time to go visit museums, to go walking through Paris, if that's where you are, to take um, a, a tour bus somewhere uh, to a um, tropical rainforest. It's just a lot of fun. That aspect of it, I really enjoyed. Or you can and sit and relax by the pool uh, in Costa Rica. Uh, which is what I did for two days on a trip down there. So to give you an idea of what it's like, it can be uh, very exciting. It can be very stressful. But if you uh, cross your T's and dot your I's and, and make sure your planning is, is correct and thorough, uh, everything goes 99.9% of the time. It goes very smoothly. And it's a lot different than most of these folks that are flying for the airlines. Like, for me, uh, the biggest challenge is uh, looking to make sure I have my passport in my bag. Whereas a corporate pilot, you are doing all the paperwork. As an airline pilot, you really hardly do any of the paperwork. But as a corporate pilot, you're you're responsible. You're 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 everything. You 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 make sure everything's uh, correct. That's correct. Um, I worked at two different corporations, both for ten years each. The first corporation I worked for uh, that I told you that I had the friend at, we did a lot of Latin American flying, and we did that without a handler. So we were the chief cook and bottle washer, so to speak. We did our own flight planning. We were the ones that communicated with the commandancia at the airport and with immigrations. And it was tricky sometimes because um, it came down to, to giving each other hand signals to try and figure out what each other was trying to get across. I remember one time a commandancia got frustrated with me because I couldn't understand what he was trying to say. And he just got up and, and made it like he was washing his hands of me and turned his back and walked away <laughs> because, you know, I just could not figure out what he wanted. Turns out we found a young gal who could translate and um, he actually wanted to know where my passengers were coming from. Uh, and that, that was basically the, frocks of what he wanted. But then the other side of the coin is flying for a company that only uses a handler. And basically what you wind up doing is you wind up calling that handler and saying, okay, I need uh, landing permits. I need overflight permits for this country. I need slot times for that airport in Zurich. Um, I need hotel rooms and transportation for the crew. And that handler then takes care of all that for you and provides that for you, which makes it a lot easier on an international trip. Well, that sounds pretty cool, actually, when you do it yourself. I mean, that's pretty challenging. You know, that, I guess that would be cool to do, you know, just to know that you can do that. You know, yeah. right, right now, I, I don't know how to do all that, you know, because I've been flying for the airlines uh, most of my life as in my aviation career. Uh, so that's a, that's a whole different aspect. But, uh, you know, speaking of which, 
what uh, you know we talked about some of the things like you were in the on these overnights and stuff like that but and that's kind of cool but what are some of the other aspects of like business aviation that you really really like well one of the things i really enjoyed was um when I was able to spend some time in a location that was unfamiliar to me, like Guadalajara, or like I mentioned, Paris. Your your time on the ground there was free time, and you pretty much typically had a uh, an expense account. The company gave you a credit card. They paid for all your meals. They paid for your cell phone. They paid for a rental car or transportation if you needed it. Obviously, they paid for your hotel. So uh, you wound up in a situation where you were on a vacation once you got to your destination, so to speak. <laughs> now, you know, you had some work to do to, to uh, prepare for your flight home. But uh, one instance I'll, I'll mention, two Julys ago, I was fortunate enough to spend two weeks in Dublin. And the CEO got off the airplane and said, now, Chris, we're not coming back early. We're going to spend as much time here as we can. So don't worry about being by your phone. Take the car and tour. And that's what we did. We, My flight crew and I, we took the rental car and we toured all of Ireland. I kissed the Blarney Stone. I went across the island to the other side, up north to Belfast. I really enjoyed that trip. And that's the exciting part about the corporate flying job. It's the difference uh, between corporate flying and airline flying. Typically, airline flying, you're flying from point A to point B and back, and that's your day. Um, whereas corporate flying, you fly from point A to point B, and then you sit there for a, a few days or 12, and then you fly home. So that is a, a, a big difference. How about the actual airplane, too, flying the plane? is that There must be some cool aspects of that. Yeah, it is. Uh, we had uh, in the Falcon 900, uh, you know, obviously it's a three-engine jet had a 3,800-mile uh, range, so we could go far in that airplane and stay a long time. They say a uh, bigger airplane means a bigger suitcase, and it stays longer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but we had iPads in that airplane that were um, hooked up to ForeFlight. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that application, but it is like a moving map display, and we had... Um, all our approach plates and charts already in the iPad. So it was nice to have that paperless cockpit uh, aspect. Uh, it was linked to a uh, portable GPS. And, you know, it basically was a, a really neat backup system for situational awareness, especially in the international environment, because um, you're kind of on your own in the inter international environment. There aren't not a lot of there's not a lot of vectoring going on and and controller handling like you get here in the states. But the airplane it was it was really a nice airplane. Um, it was very comfortable, very high tech, and very enjoyable to fly. That was that was a really nice aspect of of uh, that corporate job. Well, that sounds really cool being a corporate pilot. It, it is. But gosh, you know, it sounds like it's all fun and everything, but uh, how about some of the challenges? I'm sure there's some challenges to being a corporate pilot. Yeah, and I would have to say the two biggest challenges are the schedule because you don't really know where you're going and when you're going. If they decide they want to go to a meeting tonight, uh, that's that's what happens. You get a phone call and, and you're on your way. For example, one day when my kids were young, uh, they woke me up at 6.30 in the morning, 
And uh, that afternoon at about 1 p.m., I got a call that that night I was going to Europe. So I had to plan the trip, try and get some rest, and then fly through the night because they wanted to be in Europe the next morning uh, because of the time change. So that is one of the challenges. You're not always sure about what your schedule is. So, so planning family time um, usually it in, involves taking a vacation day uh, because you really, most companies don't typically give you hard days off. And by that, I mean, okay, two days a week, every week, the same two days you're going to have off. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you get time off but you're not always 100% sure of what those days are unless you take vacation, of course. So that's one of the biggest challenges. The other big challenge that it's not so much um, something that you have to deal with on a daily basis, but it's always in the back of your mind, and that is the fact that job security with a corporate job can be questionable sometimes. Because let's face it, not everyone in the the company views – corporate aviation as a moneymaker. It's not. It's a time machine. The CEO's time, the senior leadership time, their time is very valuable, more valuable than than, uh, the expenses required to maintain a corporate flight department. So along comes a uh, financial officer and he sees the corporate flight department as a big expense turkey. And if it comes down to trying to save money, for the company because they're they're not doing so well or whatever, the flight department is typically one of the first things to go. And that that is another challenge. Um, most corporate pilots that you speak to have had two, three, four, five, six jobs as a corporate pilot because of that very reason. So the, the typical challenge a pilot faces flying the trips, that is more of a fun challenge and that's why you're doing the job uh but the the ancillary challenges of not having a schedule and job security are uh are two bigger challenges that face a pilot on a on a more personal level and that job security like you said can be affected by something that has nothing to do with the business but an individual say a new CFO comes on and says hey we want to get rid of this expense of an airplane. We don't see the value in it, uh, just like you pointed out there. Gosh, you know, and, and that brings up, a, and there's a quick opinion thing. People don't really realize the value of corporate aviation. I'm, I'm glad you brought up it's a time machine because if you take the CEO's salary or some of the upper management salary and divide it by uh, dollars per hour, you're actually saving money by making sure this person – gets to their meeting quickly and gets back or gets and has FaceTime, say, with a customer while they're in the airplane. Uh, I'm assuming that also happens, too. You know, we actually have a customer in the plane with the CEO or some upper management. Absolutely. It always amazed me that these people would get up early and, and be at the airport by 630 for a, an early departure. They would have a meeting the entire three or four or five hours that we were in the airplane get off the airplane to go to more meetings. Then they would get back on the airplane the same day and have another three-hour meeting on the way back. It always amazed me the amount of efficiency, the amount of work that they were able to achieve. A lot of times, too, they would say, you know, um, we've gone to three destinations in one day that it would have taken us a week to do otherwise because you can't get here from, from, 
from Philadelphia or from from um, Florida, you can't get to some of these remote locations where a corporate airplane can take you um, via the airlines sometimes. So that I think was another aspect that the passengers, the the um, executives enjoyed was being able to go to some remote locations quickly without having to make two or three or four connections to get there. And, you know, if, if I could interject with that, too, and to add to that point, I was a partner in an airplane that it was a 182, and that was used by a business. That person that owned that business could get his employees all over the state of Florida and back home again that night, and he could fly to five different sites, in and out, in and out of the airport, and you could never do that by having the per- these employees get on the road in their trucks, get to the site, and come back. He'd do in one day what these folks would take three or four days to actually do. So that's a great point that you brought up that it really does save time. And time is money, especially when you have employees that are high wage earners. Uh, I think that was a great, great uh, example. I'll give you a, a converse example. Um, the last company that I flew for, every year they would take a, an eight-day trip to Europe. And during that eight-day trip, we would visit 10, 11, 12 different cities during those eight days over there. And they would meet with you know, financiers from different banks and that sort of thing. So you know, we would start in London, then go to Paris, then go to Oslo, Norway, then Copenhagen, Denmark, Zurich, Geneva, you know, we'd go to all those places in the matter of a week's time and then head back to uh, the States. And, you know, it was like it never happened. It just, it happened so fast. Wow. Wow. That's so, amazing. Yeah. It's like a flying carpet. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. It was a, it was a neat trip and I really looked forward to it because when I got back, I felt like I really did something. I looked over my shoulder like, wow, that was really exciting. You know, a highlight of my career. That's really cool. You know, uh, just to give us a little bit more clarity as to what a corporate pilot does, I mean, you've gone through some examples already, but give us kind of a typical, you know, trip as far as say, you know, a domestic trip or say, how about an international trip? Like how does your day begin and kind of walk us through, give us some, a little more granularity, a little more details as to what happens when the phone rings. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, I'd like to give you an example of a domestic trip and an international trip because they're two different animals. Um, The domestic trip, uh, a typical example for us would be to fly from, say, Philadelphia to uh, Houston, Texas. And, you know, it begins with preparation, like I said. And as a corporate pilot, you're given the trip. You're told you're the captain or you're the SIC on that trip and who you're flying with. Here are the dates. Here are the names of the passengers. Um, And you start with your preparation. One of the first things that I would do would be to call for a hotel because invariably there would be a a conference in town or something like that. So that's important to make sure that you um, prepare the uh, hotel reservations so that when you get there, you have a place to stay locally. You don't have to drive 45 minutes or an hour to get to a hotel. The second thing is calling the FBO at your destination, finding out if there's anything unusual going on at the airport, finding out if they have enough ramp space for your equipment, hangar space for your equipment. For example, in Houston, there are thunderstorms and hail. Those are considerations. Put the airplane in a hangar if you can. It's a $25 million airplane. So that call is important. And also the FBO was a major resource. They would be able to arrange the rental car for you and your your, uh, co-pilot. Uh, for your the duration of your stay. They would also be able to arrange for catering if you needed that for your return flight. 
lavatory service for the airplane, potable water service, any maintenance required, cleaning. So the FBL was a major resource. So that was my second call usually. Then it comes down to the nitty gritty of you know filing your flight plans, making sure you have the proper fuel order called into your FBO or your maintenance people. The day of your trip, you know, obviously you're packed, you wake up, you, you get on your way to the airport. Typically, I would stop somewhere and pick up newspapers for the airplane, a Wall Street, a USA Today. The, the one CEO I had demanded a New York Times. So that sort of thing you would take care of. Maybe pick up some donuts or some um, catering on the way at Panera Bread or something like that. And then um, anything else that they would require, like uh, half and half for their coffee, things you would put in the galley just to make that extra special effort of professionalism and personalization for these important customers that you're flying. Once you get to the airport, you show up, you bring your bags in, you check the weather, you verify your flight plan, you load the airplane, you put coffee and ice on the airplane, your newspapers, your catering, you do your pre-flight, everything's prepared. Now it's time to wait for your customers to stand at the ready for them to come. Sometimes they came early. Sometimes they came late, sometimes they called, sometimes they didn't. You had to be prepared for that and ready to go. At that point, the fun begins. You get them on the airplane, you brief them on the flight, you see, you verify what airport you're going to because sometimes that changed last minute. And you see if there's anything else they need, like special transportation or is someone meeting them? Can I get you a cup of coffee before we get started? It's going to be bumpy on the climb out, that sort of thing you would want to brief them. Then you start the fun part and, and you take them to their destination. And uh, um, invariably at altitude, they'll come up and sit between you and the cockpit and, and talk to you for 30, 40 minutes about things that are going on in the company, about your family, their family. And that's the neat part because you're typically flying the same people over and over. You get to know them personally when you're a corporate aviator. When you get to your destination and you get them on your way, like I said, now it's free time and you do whatever you want to do until it's time for them to come back. And uh, when they come back, the same process starts all over again for the return flight. Only this time they usually ask you, you know, what'd you do? Did you play golf? How did you spend your time here? Which is, you know, <laughs> you have to be a little careful because uh, you don't want to make it sound like you're enjoying that little vacation you just had. Away. <laughs> wow. So, but, <laughs> Well, you know, as you've been talking, it seems like you really have a personal relationship with the people you fly around. You do. And and when I left my last corporate job uh, to become an airline pilot, it was it was a little bit of it was difficult for me because I was shaking the hand of the CEO when he got off my airplane for the last time saying goodbye. And I, I developed a very personal relationship with this this gentleman. He respected me. I respected him. And um, a few days later, when he found out that I had resigned, he sent me a very, very nice um, email, a very personal email to me explaining how much he enjoyed flying with me uh, and going international trips with me and how he always felt confident in me flying his children around and his wife around. It was a very heartfelt email that I saved, and it was very uh, it was very personal to me that it was something I felt like I accomplished something. Wow, 
Uh, yeah, and that's something you don't really get with the with the airlines that much. I mean, I know you get some feedback, but that's a little bit different. Uh, right. But that, now right. that that's it sounds like first of all, and you're going to talk a little bit about an international flight. But it sounds like the FBO becomes really important to you. Me as a as an aviator in my small airplane, I don't need all those services. But it sounds like they they can really help you a lot. And I guess you you actually have to choose which FBO you go to. Also, is that correct? That's right. Uh, there are multiple FBOs that invariably at these different airports and, and they can make and break you. So after a while, you, you start to realize which FBOs are better than, than others. Some are more mom and pop type FBOs that are more eager to please you and you get better service um, from them. Other mom and pop type FBOs can be difficult because they don't have the experience in handling a, a larger corporate jet like the Falcon 900. Some of the big brand name FBOs, they are so accustomed to these larger Gulf Streams and Falcons coming. They know exactly how to descend on the airplane when it gets there and provide all your services that you're required. The girls at the counter know exactly what services you need when you're calling prior to a trip. Um, so the FBO is probably... 90% of the support process, uh, unless you're lucky enough to have a dispatcher handling things for you, they're 90% of the support process that you need when it comes time to arrange all the the, um, the things that you need to make your trip a success. Now, the, the FBO, I, I think we touched on this before, but just to explain to our listeners in case they don't know what that is, it the, the name is Fixed Base Operator, and they're usually the people that sell the uh, the fuel at the airport and rent airplanes at the smaller airports, but at the larger airports and at these destinations where they have uh, corporate aircraft, they actually do much more like we've explained here. They, they will actually have rooms for you to sleep in. They'll have coffee for you. They'll have the ability to even get you some food and say you're waiting for an airplane. They'll have a, a place for you to relax and watch TV. Uh, some even have little putting greens I've seen. I mean, I, I'm sure you probably could expand on some of the other cool things you've seen at FBOs, but that's what an FBO is. They're the they're that, that building that the corporate jet pulls up to and the people get off and they get on through, but they also have all these other services. Yeah, sometimes you'll show up and, and you'll only be there for two or three hours and they'll give you a courtesy car that you can take and go go to lunch with. Or if you need to go to the store to get some supplies for the airplane, you can take their courtesy car. They also have, uh, typically, they'll have a really nice weather room with uh, WSI and several computers there for corporate aviators to sit down and, and do their pre-flight briefings, file flight plans, et cetera. And like you mentioned, they have quiet rooms and lazy boy recliners for you to go get sleep. And they'll have a pilot lounge with, you know, 999 TV channels and, and movies to watch because they know that a lot of pilots are sitting there just passing time waiting for their um, customers to come back for the return flight. So um, now the international flights are a completely different animal because uh, with a domestic flight, you typically show up an hour before your flight and you can achieve everything you need to accomplish before the passengers show up. A domestic flight requires a little more time and preparation. Um, you still have to uh, do all of the pre-flight things that I mentioned for a domestic flight, only this time you're, you're calling a handler to help with um, getting overflight permits, getting landing permits, getting slot times, calling an FBO that's across the world somewhere because they know which FBO is the best to use. 
arranging for fuel for you at that destination and getting fuel releases. It's a little different in that um, that sort of thing is kind of already taken care of and handled when you get there to your destination. Uh, it's handled by your handler. There are several companies out there that do these handling services. Uh, they all have uh, people who speak the local language and English so that the language barrier is not as much of a problem. Um, you also pretty much uh, show up a lot earlier for your trip. When it comes time to fly your trip, you're there an hour and a half to two hours early because uh, you're verifying your flight plan, you're verifying your weather, you're making sure everybody has their passports, making sure all the life vests and all the life rafts are up to snuff. You're doing your SAFA check, which is basically a checklist that the international community wants you to follow to make sure that all the paperwork on your airplane is up to date and in order, all the inspections are in order. It's a way for you to make sure that uh, in all the different countries you're going to, you're meeting the expectations of that specific country. It's basically a, a safety checklist. The other thing, too, before your trip is you're taking spare parts. You're taking extra bottled water, extra snacks, because they're typically longer trips. You may even be taking an augmented crew member. Uh, if you're going to, say, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and then you know coming back the next day, you might be up against the time limit of your duty day, so you might take a third pilot along with you that can jump into the seat while you go back and, and take a rest. So there's a lot of different considerations with an international trip that you have to prepare for uh, before you go, and then there's a difference in how you handle things uh, during that time you're on that international trip. So this international trip is is almost the same except for all this other preparation and paperwork, that type of thing. But uh, And then during the trip, of course, if you're going overseas, then there's some different communications you have to do. So those are, those are some of the differences. But it uh, sounds like there's a lot more preparation and a lot more work. Uh, but, of course, you're still, you know, you, oh, and that was the other thing. You get paid a salary to do this, correct? That's correct. Yeah. In uh, both corporate jobs that I had, I was getting paid a salary. Both companies also offered a bonus program. And it was it was basically uh, dependent on the company's success. If the company had an extremely successful year, your bonus was was higher. If they did not have a successful year, your bonus was a lot lower, and in some cases, you didn't get a bonus. Um, the first company I worked for also offered stock options, which I was able to uh, take advantage of. Um, I wound up getting. For three years in a row, I wound up getting 800 shares of stock options, uh, and I was able to cash in on those and, and make a little extra money over and above my salary and my bonus, uh, which was which was real nice. So now, you, you t is there anything else about the international flying that we missed? Uh, is um, <clears throat> sounds like it's just you know a lot a lot more work. You're doing the same type of trip, but it sounds like it's a challenge. It really does. It's a challenge, but it's exciting. It's fun. Um, certain people don't like it. Uh, one of the guys that I used to fly with, he would he would rather not do any international trips. You know, with all the uh, terrorism that's going on and other considerations like that, you know, he he basically said, "No, I don't. I don't want to stay. I don't want to go outside of the country. I want to stay in the good old U.S., which is fine." Um, me personally, I don't mind the international travel. I kind of enjoy it just because of the challenges. And as I mentioned before, when it's over, 
I feel like I really did something. I did an aspect of my career that not many people get to achieve. That's for sure. Well, that, that sounds like a really exciting life being a corporate pilot, and uh, it sounds like you have a few years. By the way, how many years uh, did you fly as a corporate pilot? Well, all in all, I flew a total of 20 years. The first uh, job I was in was 10 and a half, and the second job I was in was 9 and a half, so it wound up being exactly 20 years. So you have a little experience <laughs> at this job here, and, and, I get, and you probably have some uh, good advice as to what people should do to get into this career. But before we do that, did you ever have to, say, interview pilots for the job at the corporation in which you worked? Yes, I did. Um, as you mentioned, I was a Czech airman for a little while. So what would happen would be uh, we would have an interview committee, myself, the chief pilot, maybe the director of aviation, and we would sort through the 300 resumes that we would get, um, three to 500, you know, depending on the time of the year uh, or what year it was. And then uh, weed out the guys that we didn't think would be appropriate for our uh, for what we were trying to achieve. So, you know, sometimes we'd be looking for a younger pilot that we could bring up through the ranks. Other times we would be looking for somebody that was already captain qualified that we could hire and, and have them start right away. So interviewing these people became kind of an art uh, because I would tailor my questions uh, depending on whether or not this person was going to be uh, a new hire uh, entry-level person, or this person was going to be a captain-qualified person. It was exciting. I got to meet a lot of promising people, young individuals especially. Uh, and one of the questions that I would always ask them was, where do you want to be in five years? What do you see yourself doing in five years? Because I wanted to see if that person had the vision of being a pilot, a, a professional pilot, uh, flying corporate executives around in this capacity uh, of what we were trying to um, achieve with, you know, this new hire person. Uh, and invariably, I got some really dramatic answers from some of these people. It was, it was exciting to hear the passion and the, um, the futures that these uh, individuals saw for themselves. So that was pretty neat to see. The advice that I would have to give for someone looking to start a career as a corporate pilot would be, again, network, network, network. Not just to meet people and gain um, advantage or being able to um, get a career at, at a future date with that company, but also to see what that company is all about and what kind of flying that company does. Because it might not be right for you. You might not want to fly around getting organ parts and flying cats in the middle of the night. That might not be the career for you. Or you might not want to go for 12 days to Ireland in a Gulfstream or a Falcon. You may want to fly domestic trips, uh, domestic day trips in a King Air the rest of your career. Or you may want to fly around the world. So that aspect of networking, I think, is very important because you don't want to just jump into the first job that comes along. You want to try and Make a career where you're going to be happy in that position, doing that specific job, not looking at it as, oh, geez, I got to go across the ocean again. Or, boy, you know, these day trips are really getting to me. I'm, I'm getting worn out. So the networking aspect of it should be um, it should be varied. There should be more than just one reason 
uh, to network with people. Before we move on, as far as other career advice, you know, you said you did some interviews. What, uh, I mean, is there anything that you can remember from those interviews that say, say certain mistakes people made on a consistent basis or, or maybe some advice you might give somebody as far as preparing for that corporate interview? Yeah, the, the, the biggest advice I could give someone, the most important advice would be to be yourself. Because as an interviewer, you can see right through somebody telling you what they think you want to hear. You want to hear their life stories. You want to hear their passion. You want to hear what they see themselves doing as a career. You don't want to hear what they think you want to hear. Uh, you want to learn about that person. You want to find out what drives them. And like I said, you can see right through when somebody's trying to just tell you what they think you want to hear. So the biggest advice would be to just be yourself. And if you're preparing for a career in, in corporate aviation or any career, I, I uh, think just just fly. I mean, get experience. No matter what you do, that's another thing that you have to do is you have to get some experience. And and like we talked earlier, being a flight instructor, I think, is a wonderful way to get that experience and, uh, and get that multi-engine time. It also seems to me, and correct me if I'm – uh, wrong is that you might need a little bit more hours, say multi-engine time or uh, total time to be competitive for a corporate job than say someone moving into say a regional airline type job. Well, to be honest with you, um, uh, let's address uh, Garrett's question about um, being 38 and is it too old for him? Is he too old or is it too late for him? I would say absolutely positively not. Uh, first of all, you know, he's got a lot of years left in him to, to give to a corporate career. So as long as he doesn't wait and, and take it too slowly and, and really um, only get his experience by the time he's 50, even then he still has 15 years to give um, and even longer in the corporate world because there, some, most corporations do not have uh, an age retirement like the airlines do. When I started, uh, everybody kept telling me 1,500 hours is the magic number. And I'm here to tell you, as soon as I hit 1,500 hours, I got that job flying that, that uh, Cheyenne and that King Air. It was amazing. And I did not have a lot of multi-engine time. I maybe had maybe 100 hours of multi-engine time. It was not a lot. But they saw in me... Uh, my drive, my passion, my professionalism, my willingness to learn, they saw that I would fit into what they were trying to achieve. Uh, and I think that's really important for someone like Garrett uh, to, to persevere, to, to just do what he can to meet everyone he can and, and keep that drive to learn and to, to fly. Like you said, just keep flying as much as you can. It's not all about the hours. It's about the person, too. Uh, if, if you're um, some hot dog that comes in and uh, you're just, you know, larger than life and over the top, well, you know, a, a chief pilot might look at you and say, you know, this guy might be a little rogue with our passengers. Uh, but if you're professional and um, always courteous and outgoing they're going to look at you and say, wow, this guy might fit into this organization. And wow, he's a good pilot too. I think with time and experience, he'll make a, a wonderful asset to this corporate flight department. 
I think that's great advice. And, you know, it's interesting how uh, a lot of people don't realize that there's many different ways to get there. But that whole networking, I, I think I think Garrett's on the right track, don't you? I do, too. I absolutely think he has the right outlook. And I think he has um, a correct path uh, to take to get the uh, proper corporate job. As long as he continues doing what he's doing, it's going to happen. The other thing um, I wanted to address, too, is most of the corporate jobs out there are Part 91. And I think he's a little worried about the SIC type rating requirement. And I think his first corporate job is most likely going to be at a Part 91 operation. So I don't think he should worry about that as much. If he does have an opportunity to, to fly for a 135 operation, either they'll help him get his ATP, or uh, if they don't, then um, you know he just needs to wait and continue building his time and, and trying to get his ATP uh, so that down the road he can get a job with that company. I know of a specific example. There's a company um, that flies blood and tissue samples. They fly 310s, Cessna 310s. Um, they have a couple of uh, Pilatus, I think, a couple of uh, smaller King Airs. They are flying all those aircraft single pilot, but they have a very uh, uh, willing group of pilots that allow flight instructors and allow other individuals trying to build time to fly right seat with them, again, non-rev. But that's a way for someone like Garrett, if he would find a company like that, if he would go to, let's say, some flight schools uh, and just get his name out there, just drop some resumes, drop a business card, meet people. Do they have opportunities for guys to fly right seat? Is there someone looking for a companion to fly along with him? Those little things help you build time little by little by little. And again, like I said, my magic number was 1,500, and that's what everybody told me. And just like that, it happened. So I think Garrett is following the appropriate path, and I think he will have success in the near future. And, you know, just to, to make sure people realize we're not, you know, I think many, many people, and this is why we're, we're making this episode about his question, is there's many other people in this, this same type of situation where they want to become a corporate pilot. And what we, we've spoken to Garrett about applies to you. It applies to you, the person that's looking at a career in corporate aviation. So, you know, when we talk about Garrett, I think there, there's a, I speak to people all the time that have this, this same concern, uh, about the, the second in command rule. By the way, there was an opinion, uh, he wanted my opinion on this. I deal with a lot of recruiters and on the regional side, especially in the regional airlines, and they really, uh, they're not doing much uh, to to worry in worries about this 135 or excuse me the uh, 1500 hour rule and the ATP rule. I think the reason is because of what uh, Garrett touched on in his question is I think that there's going to be some variance as to that 1500 hour rule. There's going to be some exceptions to that rule. There's going to be credit given for like like an aviation program or or if you've gone to a college etc. And I'll tell you why. The the one thing that, and this is again my personal opinion, the thing that I don't like about the rules, it it goes and it 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 makes it a limit based on hours, 
and not so much based on the quality of training. For instance, uh, if you had a, a high failure record uh, in your past, you might get through the interview just because of the fact that you have your ATP and someone else doesn't. So it's it's not – and the person that has 1,100 hours may be a, a terrific pilot – but you can't hire them with an airline because they don't have that that fifteen hundred hours. So yes, personally, I think things are going to change. It's not going to change until the traveling public is actually affected by this, kind of like what happened with sequestration. But I see that coming in the near future, where you know I, I've talked to recruiters and said, "Hey, we're going to have to cancel flights. Uh, there, we just don't have the pilots to fly the planes." Uh, and we've been saying this for a while. So that's not going to happen to everybody because there are some people that are being very progressive with it and and are trying to train people. Well, we, we, I think you're exactly right. You touched on something. Uh, it's, it's the quality of the training and experience that you have. I think that's more important. We, there's a joke that we have in the aviation industry. Wow, that guy has 10,000 hours, but he flew the same hour 10,000 times. <laughs> and, and, and that means you know he didn't progress from hour one to hour two and develop from hour two to hour three to be a 10,000-hour highly experienced pilot. He's flying the same thing, you know, the same hour with the same mentality 10,000 times. Um, I think there there is going to be um, some addressing of that issue that you mentioned, depending on background and experience. And I think there's going to be a variance in the the, um, the 1,500-hour rule. But for someone like Garrett, if he becomes a flight instructor, he's going to hit 1,500 hours in no time at all. It might be, you know... 18 months. And all of a sudden he's like, wow, I have 1500 hours locked. It depends on his drive and how hard he works, how much, um, flying he's willing to do. And, um, sooner or later, you know, it's going to hit like it did me. I was like, all of a sudden, wow, I've got 1500 hours. And, and just like that, I got hired. So, um, I think it's for someone like him, it, it, he shouldn't, um, expect to become a corporate pilot at the three, four, five, six hundred hour mark because he just doesn't have the experience yet. Uh, but as he gets to that 1,000 hour mark, he's going to realize that he has the experience and the professionalism that he needs, and he's going to start developing at that point. And at that point, that's when he's, he's, his outlook is going to change, and he's going to get a lot closer to uh, becoming a real corporate pilot at that time. Well, gosh, you know, it's we could talk for hours, just like I think Garrett said about this corporate flying. Uh, we're kind of up at uh, at the end of our episode here, the hour mark. Uh, so, what we're going to do is this. I mean, if there is there anything else, first of all, Chris, that you wanted to interject before we ask you, you know, what you're doing now, type of thing, and close out the show. The only thing I would like to interject is that um, flying is an up and down business. No pun intended. And to have a positive outlook always and to have fun doing what you're doing is very important because after all, that's why we want to be pilots because we love to fly. Some of the other things, the personalities, they can get in the way. Uh, And if you always try and remember uh, the reason that you started your aviation career, you'll be a success and network, network, network. I cannot emphasize that enough. Wow, that's some. Awesome, awesome advice, Chris. And boy, it's been it's been awesome having you here. And man, I tell you, I wish I wish I could do another episode. As a matter of fact, do you mind if uh, if I do get some questions? Maybe you could come back and talk to uh, to the folks here at Aviation Careers Podcast about corporate flying because I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of questions after this episode. Absolutely, I'd be glad to help in any way I can. I'm always a, a big proponent in helping 
guys start their careers. It's something that I'm passionate about. So I'll be glad to help in any way I can. Awesome, Chris. Now, Chris, uh, before we close out, too, uh, where are you now and why are you where you are now? <laughs> okay. Uh, now I'm, I'm an airline pilot. I fly an Airbus A320. And um, the reason I'm an airline pilot now is because I always knew in the back of my head that my career would not be complete unless eventually I became an airline pilot and started flying uh, you know, large aircraft like this. I tried to change career paths back when 9-11 happened, and because of 9-11, uh, pretty much the hiring shut down. Uh, and I, that's when I wound up with the last corporate job that I had. And uh, it was a very lucrative job. I had a lot of fun, gained a lot of international experience. So I stayed with it. But I always, again, knew in the back of my mind I wanted to become an airline pilot. Um, and in 2008, when the economy started to turn, the company I was flying for started to sell off divisions, started to displace people. And I knew it was probably in inevitable that eventually the flight department would go away, too. So that was when I decided to start uh, applying to the airlines again. And uh, lo and behold, I got an interview and, and I got put in the pool, got my class date. And uh, I've never looked back. I'm having a blast. I'm really enjoying, enjoying my career now. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I regret being a corporate pilot because I've had some of the most exciting trips and I've gained exciting experience as a corporate pilot. Uh, but I would also recommend someone like Garrett to not close that door and not um, rule out being an airline pilot because it is a lot of fun and it's a different kind of fun. It's, uh, it's a whole new world and I'm enjoying it immensely. So, And you can do it at any time in your career. He's 38 years old and, and you can actually, uh, I don't know if you want to share your age, but you can actually go into that uh, later on in life, you still have till age 65 to, to work for an airline. But I know people that are like myself in my 40s that are, have changed uh, airline jobs, and there's people even in their 50s that have done that. That's correct. Um, I got hired by this airline when I was 48, and um, I've um, talked to guys that got hired by this airline when they were 58. So I think um, for someone like Garrett, he should, you know, and, and everyone else, too, that's considering it, uh, it's never too late. There are job opportunities out there at major airlines like the one I'm working for where you can get hired well into your 50s and still give them a good 10 years of service. So uh, they should keep that in mind as well. What organizations are there out there to help somebody get into the corporate field to become a corporate pilot? Well, um, it depends. If you're already a flight instructor, there are a million organizations out there that help flight instructors. Um, I get emails all the time from organizations that are both imparting information to flight instructors and also looking for flight instructors to be employed by their company. AOPA, I think, is a wonderful resource, and I highly recommend um, becoming a member of AOPA because not only do they offer a wealth of knowledge and resource, but they also offer legal and medical advice um, for someone who might have a problem. If you're a flight instructor, you can do a flight instructor uh, refresher course with them at a reduced rate. So that that's another organization, I think, that would help somebody. As far as... Um, Someone who's a flight instructor or someone who is building time looking to get into the corporate aviation world, I think one major resource would be the NBAA organization. 
that stands for National Business Aircraft Association. The NBAA basically um, has a list of members like the two corporations that I worked for who were both Fortune 100 companies. They have all their contact information, what kind of equipment they fly. They have a whole database for someone like Garrett to look up and say, okay, um, I'm interested in flying out of Teterboro, New Jersey. Wow, look at this list of companies that has aircraft in Teterboro. I'll send everybody a resume and a letter, and maybe next time I'm there, I'll pop into their flight department to meet uh, Joe Smith, chief pilot at that company because of I'm trying to network. So I think the NBAA would be a, um, a big resource. The other thing NBAA offers is they offer a what they call airmail uh, and, and a job mail, uh, emails to pilots that subscribe. There are two types of job mail emails. One is for someone who is trying to get contract time. And there's other job listings there for someone who's trying to get an aviation corporate job. So that's another place uh, someone like Garrett could look into. Another thing, as someone gets their time uh, built up to 1,000, 1,500 hours, there are organizations out there. Uh, they're more like headhunter organizations, uh, but they will provide employment resources for uh, somebody looking for a corporate job. For example, Jet Professionals, Inc., uh, JPI. Basically, what you wind up doing with them is you wind up you know, giving, making contact with them and then taking an aptitude test, meeting with them. Uh, they'll help you with your resume, that sort of thing. And then they will market you to corporations out there that they think you would be able to work in, which is really nice resource. I would highly recommend contacting them. And then there's Executive Jet Management. That's a company that provides pilot services for corporate flight departments, and they also manage flight departments. So that would be another contact for someone like Garrett to, to make, just to try and network and make sure they know he's available uh, in case they have an opportunity that arises for someone with his um, his um, abilities and, and his experience. Another thing I would recommend him doing would be to contact the major flight schools, like the flight schools that provide corporate training, uh, simulator training to the corporate flight departments around the country. The biggest one, the two biggest ones that I could think of are Flight Safety International and SimuFlight. Those two companies provide training for corporate flight departments, and they also provide pilot services for corporate flight departments. And I think if, if uh, Garrett wound up with a flight instructor certificate and maybe became a flight instructor at one of these uh, companies, he would make so many new contacts at different corporations that come to these companies for training. That would be another avenue that he could take. So there are a number of organizations out there to help. It's just a matter of trying to think outside the box a little bit, trying to make those networking contacts and um, establishing uh, some kind of career path with one of these companies. I think those are some great examples. Also, I hope people will come here to aviationcareerspodcast.com and sign up for some of our email updates because uh, one of the things we're going to start doing is 
Uh, some of those things that uh, you've mentioned, Chris, about you know jobs, if we personally find out about a job, we're going to actually send an email out. Uh, they don't come that often, but uh, we'll also try to send out a list of all these different places. Like every so often we'll say, hey, this is a list of employers and this is a list of organizations, and we'll send that as an, as an email. And uh, you know, there's lots of resources on the, on the Internet. And we've interviewed uh, a few people that help out, people like uh, Garrett or anybody that's looking for an aviation job so and and the ones that you mentioned i think are terrific we've actually had people on it uh, from those organizations and we'll do it again just to help you out but uh yes there's some great places out there and i'm glad chris you mentioned those boy i i um i think those that's some incredible advice to go towards those organizations and you know what most of it's free a lot of it you can get on there and just sign up for those email updates i think that's terrific you know chris uh, uh, gosh i wish i could talk to you for another hour maybe we could have you back on to maybe explain to people what it's like to be a, a brand new pilot at an airline, what it's like to be on reserve, maybe what it's like, you said you fly the uh, Airbus, the, uh, what was it, A320 you said? Um, yep. Maybe sometime we can have you on again and just talk a little bit about that and some advice as to how to get through training and that type of thing. That would be fantastic. Like I said before, I'm passionate about helping people start their careers and I would be glad to uh, help in any way I can. Well, gosh, thanks, Chris. I really appreciate your being here. This has been awesome. I, I think I have more questions, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to come up with more questions. So if you do have any questions and you're listening to this right now, whether you're in your car or whatever, hey, pull over, write them down, remember them later, and just Click on aviationcareerspodcast.com. Click on the contact page. You can fill out an email, send it to us. What I'll do is I'll read it on the air. Of course, I'll take out all that personal information, kind of like I did with Garrett's email, and, and we'll actually answer those. Both I will, Chris will, and everybody else will. The, the, the folks that we have on here really want to help you with your career goal and help you move towards what you want to do in aviation. And we, we again, we're trying to give you an inside look here as to all the different aviation careers. And that's what Chris has done for you. He's done a wonderful job at doing this. Uh, but remember, your privacy is important. We'll, also, we'll take your, you know, your last name, obviously, off of that uh, email. If you want to leave a voicemail, uh, you can at 347-MY-WINGS. Uh, leave your personal contact information at the end, and we'll put that voicemail on the show. Well, I hope you've really enjoyed this episode, and uh, if you could, please rate us in iTunes so other people can find us and find Aviation Careers Podcast, because I think this information, especially what Chris has related to us, is really important to our listeners, and it's really important to you. Uh, if you're interested or you know somebody interested in a career as a corporate pilot, tell them to listen to this episode, episode 33. You know, as you can tell by uh, the interview with Chris today, the path towards your aviation career goal is truly varied. But you know, remember to keep looking forward and accept the many challenges as learning and growth opportunities. And you know, I know that you're going to reach your career goal if you just simply persist and persevere. Talk to you next episode and safe flying. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.